Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 259, The Fourth Crusade, part one. After listening to the previous eight episodes... I imagine some of you are still wondering, how exactly did it come to this? Just 20 years ago in our narrative, Manuel Komnenos seemed to be firmly in charge of a regional superpower. Now, the Roman capital is about to be sacked by an enemy army. Manuel was not a hugely successful emperor, but his armies could march to Hungary or Antioch with little trouble. His fleet could capture ports in Egypt and his diplomats could turn Italian cities simply by opening a chest filled with gold coins. Now, his realm was in ruins, its far-flung provinces gone, its people mutinous, its army miserable. What had happened in such a short space of time to make this calamity possible? As many scholars have identified, the problem likely lies in the personal nature of Komnenian government. In the old days, as you know, Constantinople was the central distribution point for the wealth of the entire region. The Roman government taxed the lands from Sirmium to Samosata, and then handed out the proceeds to anyone willing to do their bidding. This included their own officials and generals, but also foreign leaders who'd agreed to leave the borders alone. This system of court honours collapsed in the wake of the Battle of Manzikert. The loss of so many provinces to the Turks broke the bank, and the Romans had to scramble to find an alternative way to bind the empire's elites to the centre. Alexius Komnenos's solution was to make government a family affair, Instead of rewarding distant potentates, he made authority dependent on someone's relationship with him personally. So in order to share in the spoils of the state, men had to marry into the ruling family. This was a remarkably effective solution for three generations. John and Manuel suffered very few usurpation attempts. And though this new family tree began to creak as more branches grew, up until Manuel's death, the trunk held firm. When Andronicus was invited in to take over as emperor, many believed that he was going to act as a support structure for the tree. But instead, he cut the whole thing down. 
Some academics are sympathetic to Andronicus, suggesting that he planned on reintroducing the old system of court honours. I am not convinced by that. I think he is more responsible than anyone for the sack of Constantinople. Once Andronicus was gone, the aristocracy had nothing to unite around. They fought over control of the throne in a selfish and self-destructive way. Roman government became flimsy and ineffective. Everyone could see it and feel it. Hence the riots on the streets and the revolts in the provinces. No one feared Byzantium anymore. The certainty that a Roman army would be sent to punish you is what kept men in line. But now, those paying attention could see that the army was not what it had once been, and that it would probably be turned on other Romans before it was turned on you. The nations of the West were certainly paying attention. The Normans who attacked Thessalonica, the pirates who preyed on Roman waters, the crusaders who blackmailed the emperor. It was clear to the Latins that the Roman Empire was in a weak and vulnerable state, and many men were of a mind to take advantage of the situation. Traditionally, with epic stories of war, I've produced one long, multi-hour episode. But the context for the Fourth Crusade is so detailed that I think we'll split it in two. Today I will get the Latins from France to the outskirts of Constantinople, and in our next episode we'll cover the siege itself. Returning to the narrative then, our emperor is Alexius Angelos Komnenos, the man who'd overthrown his brother, Isaac, at the behest of a coalition of other nobles. According to our historian, Coniates, Alexius felt guilty about his actions, and he kept his brother and his family under very comfortable house arrest near the capital. The former Vasilevs was allowed to welcome visitors, and many people went to pay their respects. According to Coniates, Isaac, blind but sound of mind, was active in seeking a reversal of his fortunes. He would sneak letters out of his confinement to friends in high places, including messages sent to his daughter Irene, who had married Philip, the Duke of Swabia, in southwest Germany. Philip was a man of great influence. He was in line to become the next Holy Roman Emperor, and these letters begged Irene to ask her husband to help restore her family to their rightful place. The authorities must have had some idea of what was going on, because in the summer of 1201, as the emperor prepared to march out into the Balkans, he ordered his nephew, Isaac's son, to come on campaign with him, as a hostage of sorts. This 19-year-old boy was loyal to his father and used this opportunity to escape. He made a deal with a Pisan ship's captain, escaped his minders, and raced for the coast. The boat met him there and whisked him away to Sicily. Once he landed, his sister sent agents to pick him up, and he was escorted north to Philip's court. After embracing his sister, he made his case to the Duke of Swabia. Please restore my family to the Byzantine throne, and you will be handsomely rewarded. Philip was all ears. This young man was, of course, named Alexius, 
and will be referred to as Alexius Angelos from now on. Many Byzantine nobles had fled Constantinople since Manuel's death, each telling tales of how their family had been ousted from power unjustly. Famously, Manuel's cupbearer had convinced the king of Sicily to launch the campaign which sacked Thessalonica. The majority of these appeals, though, fell on deaf ears, or at least ears that weren't willing to make war on the Romans on a flimsy pretext. Had things played out differently, Alexius Angelos might well have ended his days as a disgruntled courtier in Swabia, but his appeal just happened to coincide with the calling of a fourth crusade. It was a toxic combination, turning a pilgrimage to the Holy Land into a mission to destroy Constantinople. For good reason, many of you listening will think of this story as a desperate tragedy, a dark episode to be deeply regretted. But if I were making a film about the Fourth Crusade right now, it would be a black comedy. After all, a crusade was a pilgrimage, a sacred journey to cleanse souls. But thanks to the relentless lying, foolishness and greed of its leaders, the Fourth Crusade quickly became a grotesque parody of such a mission. I'll be using that sound effect as a paragraph break, rather than to mark the passing of a year. As I mentioned when the Third Crusade drew to a close, the leaders of the West now understood that Jerusalem could not be held by pilgrims alone. A standing army had to be recruited if Outremere was going to remain in Latin hands. The only way to make that sustainable was to conquer the neighbouring kingdom of Egypt. Not only would this provide the money and manpower to keep the Crusader states safe, but it would also knock their greatest enemy out of the game. Saladin had built his power on the revenues of Egypt, so if the Nile could be taken from his successors, a Christian holy land could become a reality. Calls for a new campaign to the east had gone around ever since Richard the Lionheart sailed home to England in 1192. But real impetus came with the election of Pope Innocent III in 1198. Innocent was only 37 at the time, offering the possibility of a long pontificate where much could be achieved. One of his first acts was to call for a new crusade to retake Jerusalem from the Muslims. The response was disappointing. Most of the crown heads of Europe were busy fighting each other or dealing with domestic matters, only the new king of Hungary, Emmerich, agreed to join the fight. It took another year of preaching to find a receptive audience. At a tournament held in Champagne, a group of French nobles agreed to take the cross. Their leader was to be Thibault, the Count of Champagne. He was joined by his cousin, Louis of Blois, and then later Baldwin, the Count of Flanders. These were powerful men, with many retainers and relations who would sign up as well. Each was in his twenties and excited at the prospect of holy war. With hindsight, it's possible to see that the Fourth Crusade was already running into problems five minutes after it had begun. Pope Innocent wanted to direct the campaign personally, not just out of 
control freakery, but because many believed that previous pilgrimages had failed because of the sins of those taking part. With papal legates calling the shots, Innocent could keep the venture on the right side of the divine and ensure its success. And though he had representatives at the tournament in Champagne, the French nobles were already making decisions to suit themselves. They quickly agreed that they would sail for the Holy Land rather than trek through Byzantium, and that their real target must be Egypt rather than Jerusalem itself. They then chose representatives to go to Venice to hire a fleet. Pisa and Genoa were at war, so Venice was the obvious choice, and they may also have been the only power capable of outfitting the number of ships the Frenchmen had in mind. After all, if they were going to invade Egypt, they would need a mighty flotilla. Now, Pope Innocent had already been in dialogue with the Venetians. He certainly wanted their participation in proceedings. But Venice was a different beast from the lords of northern France. They were a republic who made collective decisions, rather than individuals who could let their consciences guide them. Nor did the Venetians have farms that they could leave in the hands of their subordinates. If they travelled to the Holy Land in their ships, then there would be nothing back home generating any income. The average Venetian may have been as moved by the plight of Jerusalem as the average Frenchman, but the decision to go on crusade was far trickier for those whose livelihood was the sea. The Venetians had taken part in military action in Outremere before. They had captured the port of Tyre in exchange for a third of the city. A similar deal would need to be struck if the Italians were going to join this new venture. Another wrinkle was the ongoing conflict over the Adriatic. You may recall that at the height of his power, Manuel Komnenos had annexed a string of cities on the Adriatic coast. He took these from the Hungarians, who he'd defeated on the Danube. But for centuries, those cities in modern Croatia had owed allegiance to Venice. A peaceful Adriatic was a prerequisite for the Venetian way of life. And so when the elites of those cities began to make alliances with the King of Hungary, it was a major concern for the Italians. The city causing the biggest headache was Zara, modern Zadar. Its port was being used to harass Venetian merchants. The culprits were often the Pisans, who were now competing with Venice for control of the trade routes east. The Venetians could hardly sail for Egypt while their backyard was under threat, and Pope Innocent was well aware of this. In his exchanges with the Venetian Doge, he made it clear that if the Italians joined the crusade, they could not make war on fellow Christians. That would undermine the sanctity of the expedition. For the Venetians, then, crusading might sound like more trouble than it was worth, and for the past century that had largely been the case. The Venetians, after all, could rely on their privileged position within the Byzantine Empire to guarantee their profits. They didn't need to kowtow to the Pope or make deals with the King of Jerusalem. Constantinople was the place where they made their money. And then along came Manuel Komnenos, who in 1171 arrested every Venetian within his realm. 
This shocking break with any number of norms permanently scarred the relationship between the Merchant Republic and its long-standing trading partner. How could it not? The Venetians spent the next three decades patiently trying to have their rights restored. But there was now a considerable argument on the lagoon for moving away from reliance on Constantinople. If the Byzantines couldn't be trusted, then the merchants of Venice must diversify. To this end, new treaties had been negotiated with the rulers of the Maghreb, Cilicia, and Cairo. But the Venetians were latecomers in many of these places, and found that their Pisan and Genoese rivals were far better established. The Fourth Crusade therefore offered a fabulous opportunity. To conquer Egypt would allow the Venetians to take control of ports like Alexandria, the most profitable in the Mediterranean, relieving them of their dependence on the fickle Byzantines and allowing them to outshine their rivals. Still, it was no easy decision. The Doge of Venice, the blind nonagenarian Enrico Dandolo, had spent a good part of his life patiently negotiating with Roman officials. Isaac Angelos had finally agreed to fully reimburse them for the losses of 1171 and restore their privileges. Though his brother Alexius had tried to renege on the deal, he too was now coming around. Enrico wasn't going to throw all that away on a whim. In light of what is about to happen, stories grew up that Dandolo's loss of sight was due to an altercation with the Byzantines, and that he was bitter and determined to punish them. But there's no evidence to back that up. His sight seems to have gone with old age, and his career suggests a man who made decisions coolly and carefully. The French delegation arrived in Venice in the summer of 1201 and met with the Doge. They explained their plan. They would recruit a massive army, sail directly for Egypt, and capture a port. They would then march inland, defeat Saladin's successor in battle, and capture the country. The Venetians would transport them, feed them, and provide the naval expertise necessary to make the conquest a success. When the Doge asked how many soldiers the Latins planned on recruiting, they responded, between 30 and 40,000. I know it can be hard to keep medieval numbers in perspective, given the centuries we've covered together. But when Belisarius invaded Africa, he took 17,000 soldiers with him, and that required about 500 ships to carry. And as you may recall, Justinian's cabinet predicted that such a venture would bankrupt the empire. I know that 70,000 people marched off on the First Crusade, but that was an exceptional event, and though the German emperor or the French king might be able to recruit 15,000 men to go to Jerusalem, neither had contemplated sailing, since the costs would be prohibitively expensive. What the envoys were proposing was, frankly, ridiculous. The kind of passion needed to move that many people just didn't exist anymore nor did their lords have the coercive power necessary to compel them. I should perhaps clarify that many ordinary souls did respond to papal preaching and offered to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but these were not the kind of people equipped to launch an amphibious invasion of Egypt. The envoys seemed to have put the needs of the mission 
ahead of sober calculation. 30,000 soldiers was a reasonable estimate of what it would take to conquer the Nile, but they grossly overestimated the powers of papal preachers. Enrico Dandolo may have raised an eyebrow or two when he heard the numbers quoted, but who was he to question the envoys? They had papal backing. Perhaps that many men could be found. The doge left the meeting and began to ponder what it would take for Venice to transport an army of that size. He met with his council, and they spent a full two weeks discussing the matter. After all, such a mission required complex calculations. The costs had to be carefully weighed. It wasn't just a question of transporting that many men. It was their armour, their siege engines, their horses, and enough food and water to sustain them and the Venetians for months at a time. Even more vitally, such a mission would force the Venetians to stop doing anything else. The entire republic would need to be reorganised in order to build and man a fleet of that size. They would probably have to give up two or even three summers' worth of normal business. What price do you put on that? Dandolo and his council eventually concluded that it was indeed worth the risk. They were being handed the opportunity to seize the coast of Egypt. They could fulfil their religious duties and secure their future prosperity in one campaign. It was an opportunity not to be missed. Finally, then, the doge called the envoys back into his presence and told them the good news. Venice would join the mission, and the blind, 90-plus-year-old doge would sail with them. There could be no doubt about his commitment to the cause. Given his age, he may have intended to die in the Holy Land. But there is, of course, the matter of payment. Enrico told them that he could transport four and a half thousand knights, nine thousand squires, and twenty thousand infantry, but that payment would be required in advance to the tune of eighty-five thousand silver marks. Scholars suggest that this was a perfectly reasonable figure for what was being offered, but it was a colossal sum, double what the King of France collected in a year. The Venetians were offering to contribute fifty war galleys at their own expense, they only asked that all booty, including the lands of Egypt itself, were divided 50-50 between them and the Crusaders. Sadly, the Latin envoys did not spend two weeks carefully considering the calculations. After barely a day, they were ready to sign on the dotted line. Dandolo took the deal to the assembly of the people, made a rousing speech in its favour, and the Venetians gave it their assent. The Fourth Crusade, as we call it, was set to depart on the 29th of June, 1202. Everyone shook hands and got to work. Next stop, Pelusium. The problems inherent in this campaign began to crop up immediately. The envoys sent the signed treaty to the Pope for confirmation. And though he too may have looked askance at the sums agreed, he gave it his approval. This was the sort of campaign he'd had in mind after all, but he did make his blessing conditional on one point. The Venetians should not attack their fellow Christians while they were on pilgrimage. This was especially pressing, since the King of Hungary had agreed to go on crusade, 
Not on this particular mission, but he'd taken the cross, which meant his lands were now under papal protection, including the city of Zara. With great prescience, the Pope understood that the Venetians were unlikely to leave their home undefended while Zara opposed them. Meanwhile, the Crusade leadership got together and agreed that this was a solemn mission, and that everyone must repent and take their oaths seriously. Oh, and also we should definitely lie about the true destination of the campaign. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry, what? You heard right. The preachers who went out into the French countryside did not always mention Egypt. The problem was that your average medieval Frenchman did not care about the strategic realities of Outremere. They wanted to go to Jerusalem and pray on the spot where Christ died. So the priests just talked about recovering the Holy Sepulchre from those filthy pagans. The assumption was that if they explained about the whole naval invasion of Egypt part of the mission, many soldiers would turn their nose up at the enterprise. I always think mass deception is a good start to a pilgrimage. And this is where the black comedy really starts to kick in. Because if you tell people that they must go to Jerusalem, you can't then tell them that they have to go to Venice next summer and sail with Thibaut and Louis and Baldwin. Because if you do, people will start asking why. So lots of people across France and elsewhere heard the call, accepted it, and simply sailed for Acre. Because no one had told them that the real point of the campaign was to invade Egypt. One of our main historians for the campaign is the Marshal of Champagne, Geoffrey of Villardouin. Geoffrey blames these people for not coming to Venice as requested. But of course no one had told them the plan. Or if they did, some of them will have thought, nah, that's not for me. But I will travel to the Kingdom of Jerusalem and do my duty there. Geoffrey's blame game is probably an attempt to absolve himself from the charge of incompetence, since it was the Marshal of Champagne who was at the negotiating table with Enrico Dandolo, and presumably when the Doge said, 30,000 men, are you sure you can recruit that many? Geoffrey responded, absolutely. You also need a sudden death in any black comedy, and ours is provided by Thibaut of Champagne the leader of the crusade, who unexpectedly passed away in May 1201. This was a real blow and affected recruitment in the heartlands of France. It's never a good sign for a campaign when its leader keels over well before his time. Letters were exchanged, searching for a new commander. The other leading Frenchmen didn't seem to have enough prestige to assume control themselves, and ideally they needed someone who could bring a fresh contingent of pilgrims with him. Soon enough, the right candidate was found in the figure of Boniface of Montferrat. If that name sounds familiar, it should. The Montferrat family of northern Italy were a rich clan with a strong crusading pedigree. It was this reputation that caught the attention of Manuel Comnenos when choosing a suitable husband for his daughter. Renier of Montferrat duly married Maria but was then murdered by Andronicus Comnenos. In compensation, Isaac Angelos offered his daughter's hand to Renia's older brother Conrad, who turned up, won a civil war for Isaac, and then absconded when he heard that Jerusalem had fallen to Saladin. Boniface was the middle brother, 
and had become the Marquis of Montferrat in 1192. Not only did he have the name to inspire further recruitment, but also the crusading know-how from his family connections. On his way home from meeting the other leaders of the crusade, Boniface stopped off at the court of his patron, Philip of Swabia, where he stayed for Christmas. Philip had an interesting houseguest to introduce to Boniface, Alexius Angelos. Isaac Angelos's son had arrived a few months earlier, embraced his sister, and appealed to her husband for help. His father's throne had been stolen from him, and therefore he, Alexius, had been robbed of his birthright. Naturally, there would be rich rewards on offer to the gallant Latin who restored him to his rightful place. This was just the sort of entreaty likely to be greeted warmly in the courts of the West, a noble cause that would win much praise and restore a God-appointed ruler that also happened to promise oodles of cash and land as part of the deal. Philip was interested in helping his wife and subduing Byzantium for his own benefit, while Boniface was keen to play a key role in the recapture of Jerusalem and knew that the Romans had the money to fund his ambitions. Philip was, after all, the son of Frederick Barbarossa and had inherited the complex family feelings about Byzantium. It was his brother, Henry, who had demanded £5,000 of gold from the Byzantines just five years earlier to pay for him to go to Jerusalem. You remember when Alexius Angelos Komnenos had to ransack the tombs of the empress to raise the money. Barbarossa's family clearly felt that the Byzantines owed them a crusade, or in other words, should be made to finance an expedition, given all the trouble they had caused Frederick. So the chance to install young Alexius on the throne was ideal. He was a young, impressionable man who would become their protégé. He would give them all the money and support they demanded, and would clearly place Byzantium where it belonged, in a subordinate position to the Holy Roman Empire. Boniface may have felt a certain amount of bitterness about the way his family had been treated in Constantinople, but I think he saw them more as a means to an end. His brother Conrad had been paid handsomely for his service to Isaac Angelos, and had then moved on to Tyre, where he was elected as the new King of Jerusalem. It was only an assassin's blade that stopped him from achieving his ambition. Boniface may have had a similar career path in mind. The reason I'm discussing the motives of Philip and Boniface is that I believe the decision was made then and there, at Christmas 1201, to go to Constantinople and restore Alexius Angelos to the throne. It seems likely to me, based on the work of scholars like Michael Angold, that from this point forward Boniface campaigned to divert the crusade to Constantinople. In the accounts written by those on the campaign, the proposal to go to Byzantium comes much later in the story. But historians like Angold and others argue that the plan was set much earlier in the process. With Philip's support, Boniface was given permission to recruit soldiers from Swabia and the surrounding lands in order to take the crusade to Constantinople and secure it for their cause. History can turn on relatively small events. If Thibaut of Champagne hadn't died, Boniface may never have received the call to join the campaign, and Byzantium would have been shut out of the Fourth Crusade. As it was, a trip to the Bosphorus 
was now very much on the table. Nothing was certain at this stage, though. In early 1202, Alexius Angelos travelled south and presented his offer to Pope Innocent. The pontiff demonstrated an excellent understanding of Byzantine politics as he rejected the proposal. He pointed out to Alexius that he was not born in the purple, nor had his father Isaac inherited the title from Manuel. Therefore, he could hardly accept the argument that Alexius was the true heir to the Byzantine throne. Soon afterwards, Boniface himself came to the Eternal City to discuss the crusade that he was now in charge of. Doubtless, he lobbied for the pontiff to change his mind, especially since young Alexius was offering the kind of cash that might help pay for the very expensive Venetian fleet that was under construction. Innocent did not budge. He was none too happy about these developments. He did not particularly want Boniface as leader of his crusade. He'd been pleased with an obedient French leadership group. Boniface had an independent mind and owed allegiance to Philip of Swabia, who Innocent had just excommunicated. Now Boniface was talking up an attack on Constantinople as part of his mission. No, no, no! No attacking fellow Christians! Since these were only proposals, there was no need for the Pope to put anything into writing, so Boniface let the matter drop while secretly making plans to convince everyone of his way of thinking when they gathered in Venice a few months later. As spring turned to summer, 1202, armed pilgrims began to make their way to the Venetian lagoon. Most were from northern France, but there were contingents from Germany and, of course, Montferrat. The problem was there were far fewer than had been expected. The launch date of the 29th of June came and went, with everyone scanning the horizon for reinforcements. Only about 12,000 of the promised 33,000 men had made it to the Adriatic. Among them were less than 2,000 knights, hardly the kind of force that would strike terror into the Sultan of Egypt. This was hugely embarrassing for the Latin leadership. Not only were they hearing about men who'd sailed for Jerusalem from other ports, but even some on the spot began deserting and finding other routes when they realised that this giant Venetian fleet wouldn't be leaving any time soon. Those who did stay were shipped over to the island of San Nicolo, the modern Lido, to keep them away from the civilian population. As the weeks dragged on, the men there began to feel like prisoners. They couldn't leave the island and depended on the Venetians to drop off supplies every few days. Disease and hunger spread. Again, there's a darkly comic aspect to this scene. The crusade leaders all awkwardly looking at the floor every time the doge asks them how many more pilgrims they were expecting. And then Boniface remembers that Dandolo is blind and starts making gestures at Baldwin to help him come up with more excuses. It writes itself. Of course, there was nothing to laugh about for those involved. The leaders were thoroughly humiliated, and the doge was facing financial ruin. So Boniface, Louis of Blois, and Baldwin of Flanders went around the camp saying, uh, sorry about the delay and uh, the... Uh, the imprisonment, but um, if you could just give me all your money and possessions, that would be great. It's just that we owe the Venetians 85,000 marks, and, well, we're a little short. 
Actually, the Latin leadership were desperately short. They had failed to raise any money in advance, despite promising to pay the Venetians before they arrived. In another shake-your-head moment, they'd actually had to take out a loan from a Venetian bank just to pay a small deposit. They decided to rely on the rank-and-file pilgrims to each pay for their own passage, which they did, but with such a disappointing turnout, there was now a massive deficit to make up. As you can imagine, the Latins stuck on the Lido were outraged to be asked to cough up more money. Many threatened to quit the expedition. The chickens were coming home to roost. By lying about the destination of the mission, most of the pilgrims were confused by what was happening. They didn't need such a large fleet to take them to Acre. What's the hold-up? In the end, Boniface and the others reached deep into their own pockets, took out more loans, and still came up about 34,000 marks short of what they owed. Enrico Dandolo was exasperated. He had prepared a fleet of over 200 ships. Horse transports, war galleys and supply vessels had been built from scratch. Each was fully crewed and fully provisioned. The supplies were rotting on board as the crusaders bickered over how to pay for it all. By one modern estimate, 30,000 Venetian sailors were waiting quayside and expecting payment for their services. One suggestion was just to go anyway and let the Latins pay the money they owed from the booty they captured in Egypt. Well, that was all well and good if the mission succeeded, but what if it failed? The army was so much smaller than expected, there was every chance now that the Egyptians would defeat them. Dandolo couldn't risk the Republic's strength on such a shaky roll of the dice. The season was getting late too. It was now September. There was hardly enough time to make it to Alexandria before winter set in. The obvious solution, from a Venetian point of view, was to use the crusade to capture the city of Zara. This would clear the path for the invasion of Egypt and could be used to write off some of their debt. It may well be that this had been part of Dandolo's thinking all along, since, as I mentioned earlier, it was a dangerous proposition to send the fleet away with an enemy so close to home. The Venetians also felt that this was a righteous cause. Zara had long been a Venetian possession. Their rebellion was a treacherous affair that should not be allowed to stand, and the Hungarian king's promise to go on crusade was still unfulfilled, surely denying him the papal protection which he claimed. That was the Venetian perspective anyway. Another way of seeing it was that Dandolo was proposing to use the crusade to kill fellow Christians, and to subjugate a city that was under papal protection. In most crusading histories, the Latins reluctantly agreed to Dandolo's terms because they had no other choice. But as Michael Angold and others argue, it seems more likely that Boniface took this opportunity to say, hey, we'll take Zara for you if you take Constantinople for us. A diversion to the Bosphorus was much more appealing now that the crusade was undermanned and underfunded. The Byzantines would pay for the shortfall, and once Alexius was installed on the throne, he would be able to feed them and provide them with more men and more ships. Given how events unfold when the crusade reaches Zara, I am persuaded by this logic. 
Enrico Dandolo was in just as tight a position as the Latins were, he was surely being blamed for bankrupting the Republic. So if the Byzantines could be persuaded to pay off the Crusaders' debt, it was an option he had to strongly consider. Of course, in keeping with the theme of this crusade, it was agreed that all of this must be kept quiet. We'll just tell the assembled pilgrims that we're off to Jerusalem. What they don't know won't hurt them. So Dandolo postponed the debt owed to him, and the Latins agreed to assault a Christian city. Amongst the leadership group, there was a lone dissenting voice, the papal legate, Peter Capuano, who was in an impossible position. It would have been easy for him to condemn the whole enterprise and to reveal to the massed pilgrims that the pontiff had forbidden them from going to Zara. But Capuano knew that Innocent desperately wanted the crusade to succeed and that if he told the truth, the mission would collapse immediately. So he remained tight-lipped as the negotiations unfolded. To make sure he stayed that way, Dandolo refused to transport him to Zara. When the fleet set sail on the 1st of October, Peter headed for Rome to tell Innocent what was happening. Boniface, the leader of the crusade, also avoided travelling to Zara in an attempt to make it seem like this was not officially part of the armed pilgrimage. That's what I love about the Latins. They're so forthright and honest, not like those deceitful Byzantines. There was great excitement within the army as everyone filed on board the ships and pushed off from the harbour. At last, the journey to the Holy Land could truly begin. Of course, they weren't really heading for the Levant. Instead, the Venetians put in at every port along the eastern Adriatic coast, demanding submission from the towns aligned with Hungary and contributions from those loyal to Venice. They arrived at Zara on the 11th of November. The fleet landed easily, but found the gates of the city closed and defenders patrolling the walls. It was now that the leaders revealed the deal they'd struck with the Venetians to capture Zara. This caused outrage amongst many of the Latins. They hadn't agreed to this. They were increasingly feeling like Venetian marionettes and were determined not to soil their pilgrimage with the blood of Christians. While this discontent was swirling, the Tsarans sent a delegation to Dandolo's tent. Understandably, they were here to surrender and gain favourable terms. The Doge, diligent as ever, said he would consult with the other leaders of the mission, though obviously he fully intended to accept their surrender and take control of the city peacefully. While the Tsaran envoys waited for him to return, they were approached by a group of Latin nobles. Their leader was Simon of Montfort. He told them that they had nothing to worry about because no honest pilgrim would attack their city. The envoys were stunned and asked if Simon would kindly make this declaration publicly. He did. So they left and went back to the city to report the astonishing news. In pure sitcom fashion, Enrico Dandolo now entered stage left to accept the surrender of the city, only to discover what had happened. The Doge was furious, as were the other Latin leaders. They rounded on Simon of Montfort, but the instigating nobleman felt he had acted correctly and refused to back down. At some point it became known amongst the leadership that the Pope had in fact forbidden them from attacking Zara. 
and that those who disobeyed would be excommunicated. This information would have killed the Enterprise Stone dead if it had become widely known. And so, in yet another moral compromise, this news was also suppressed. Baldwin and Louis felt deeply conflicted. I tried to keep my Game of Thrones references to a minimum, but like Jamie Lannister, they were faced with a choice between two different promises they'd made. On the one hand, disobeying the Pope could invalidate the whole mission. On the other, they'd sworn to Dandolo that they would take Zara in order to pay off their debts. The greatest pressure of all was the fear that the Crusade would collapse. This was an enterprise that was meant to define these men's lives. It had taken a tremendous amount of money and effort to get this far. To let it all fall apart now would have been heartbreaking. Two weeks later, then, the Latins began their assault on the walls of Zara. It did not take long for the city to capitulate. Terms were offered to avoid further bloodshed. Many Zarans abandoned their city as the Crusaders and Venetians rushed in to ransack it. This caused further problems, since technically Zara was now Venetian property, rather than a defeated city open to a sack. The subtlety of this was lost on the rank-and-file Latins, who were irritated to be told to uh, put that back. A few days later, a brawl broke out between the pilgrims and the Venetians, which left a hundred men dead. The leaders stepped in to restore order and encouraged everyone to grab a Zaran house to live in for the next few months. The crusade would winter on the Adriatic before setting sail again in the spring. The leadership council sent an embassy to Rome to beg Pope Innocent for forgiveness. The correspondence which followed exposed the divisions within the crusade. Innocent wanted everyone involved to put their repentance in writing promised to restore Zara to its rightful owners and to pay compensation. The Latin leaders were happy to agree to this, but the Venetians could not. Again, they were not individuals acting out of conscience, but a state who made decisions collectively. So Dandolo made no promises about the future of Zara. This angered Innocent, who forgave the pilgrims, but excommunicated the Venetians. This put the crusade leadership in another impossible position. They couldn't move forward without the Italian ships. And so, all together, they lied about it. (laughs) They suppressed the Pope's letter and simply told the mass of pilgrims that all was forgiven. Simon of Montfort and his contingent were not buying it, abandoned the mission and left Zara, beginning a steady trickle of desertions that would continue all the way to the gates of Constantinople. Speaking of which, it was during December that Boniface of Montferrat rejoined his crusade, along with an embassy sent from Philip of Swabia. The envoys brought an offer from Prince Alexius Angelos, who was offering huge rewards if the crusade would restore him to his rightful place in the great palace. Philip's envoys met with the leadership council, shook everyone's hands, waited for silence, and then made them an offer they couldn't refuse. Alexius Angelos, son of Isaac, was the rightful heir to the Byzantine throne. His father had been betrayed by his own brother and a horrible cabal of oath-breaking noblemen. 
They had plucked out their rightful lord's eyes, a grievous sin and a horrible betrayal. In return for being restored to his throne, Prince Alexius will pay you 200,000 silver marks. In addition, he will provide provisions for every man in the army and navy, and send 10,000 soldiers to aid you in your noble cause. Then once Egypt is subdued, the Romans will pay for 500 knights to defend Outremir on a permanent basis. And finally, Prince Alexius will make the Byzantine church subservient to Rome. Yes, once you restore Prince Alexius, everyone in Christendom will be on the same side at last. Everyone will take their orders from Pope Innocent, who will surely bless the entire enterprise. We can only imagine that certain jaws were on the floor upon hearing this. Alexius's offer solved every problem which the crusade faced. Their money woes gone in an instant. Their shortage of manpower, no bother. How to convince men to stay in the Levant after victory was won? We've got you covered. How can we possibly sell this all to the Pope? How about half a continent's worth of new souls? Now you're talking. Clearly, Philip and Boniface had designed this appeal on behalf of young Alexius. It was carefully calibrated to smooth over every objection which the Latins might raise. In case you're in any doubt, this was a ludicrous offer. 200,000 silver coins was beyond the capabilities of the Byzantine treasury at this time. Remember that when they'd been asked to cough up about half that amount by Barbarossa's other son, Alexius Angelos Komnenos had convened a parliament to discuss the matter for fear that if he began requisitioning that kind of money, he'd be overthrown. In Manuel's day, such a sum would have been available, though it would have been a shock to the system to lose it all in one go. But when you add in the need to provision an army and navy of 40,000 people, no, make that 50,000 once you add in the 10,000 troops that you're providing and their pay then the sums become impossible. With the empire in a permanent state of civil war, that amount just couldn't be raised. And as for sending 10,000 soldiers overseas, I doubt if the emperor was leading that many out into the Balkans each summer. What was going to happen when the next Bulgarian raid came over the horizon now that you'd sent all your soldiers to Cairo? The decision to make the Orthodox subservient to the Catholics was the icing on the cake of this fantasy. Even if the empire could satisfy the other conditions of this deal, there's no way the people would accept this. Anti-Latin sentiment ran high on the streets of Constantinople and amongst the clergy. To be told that they must abandon orthodoxy on the Pope's say-so would surely prompt yet another civil war. Doubtless, Philip and Boniface told Alexius that without that offer, papal support would be impossible and without papal approval, the pilgrims would refuse to go through with an attack on a fellow Christian state. As I mentioned earlier, in the first-hand accounts of the Fourth Crusade, this embassy comes out of the blue. Only now, on the beach of Zara, does someone mention for the first time the idea that Constantinople was a potential destination. But this seems doubtful. 
there are no Venetian accounts of the expedition, but it is the fact that Enrico Dandolo immediately endorsed the proposition that convinces me that he knew about it all along. Remember that Dandolo had taken his time to weigh up the decision to join the crusade in the first place. He had to consult widely. He had to have logistical plans drawn up. He had to calculate the potential consequences of a truly momentous decision. There's no way he responded on a whim to a pitch in his tent at Zara. He would have had to have consulted with his nobility and his ship's captains about what a diversion to Constantinople might look like. Not to mention that he had signed a treaty with the Byzantines guaranteeing his people extensive trading privileges. If he joined an attack on them and it failed, he would forfeit a lifetime's work. Seriously, imagine if Dandolo had launched an attack on his major trading partner and it had failed, and the whole mission collapsed. The Venetians would be left with no place in Byzantium and no place in Egypt. The Doge would have destroyed the Republic's way of life with one reckless gamble. No way. Enrico must have known about the possibility of an attack on Constantinople before he left home. That doesn't mean it was the fixed plan all along, but there's no way he made this decision on the hoof. Another point to consider is that, of the crusade leadership, only Dandolo would know if an attack on Constantinople was possible. The French contingent had no clue about the state of Byzantine politics, and though Boniface would have been much better informed, he wouldn't have up-to-date information on the state of the Roman army, navy and government. Only the Doge was in that position. Only he received weekly reports from his sailors as they returned from the Sea of Marmara. Only he could have known that the Roman government was in shambles, its fleet in ruins and its army demoralised. Only he could have made the calculation that Constantinople could be intimidated by the Crusaders. Remember that back in 1171, when Manuel arrested all the Venetians, the Italians had gone to war. The Doge of the day had sent a fleet into the Aegean to take revenge. Manuel had the Roman navy ready to respond. The Venetians couldn't advance on Constantinople, and eventually disease spread through the fleet, driving the Italians home. Dandolo had lived through all of that. He had gone on embassies to the Great Palace. If this was Manuel's day, he would have dismissed the idea out of hand. But he didn't. He gave it his support. Dandolo was taking a major risk, but he must have considered that having come this far, a diversion to Constantinople was the only way to save the mission. He had so much invested in the crusade that he had to find a way to make his money back. It's very much worth saying that Dandolo probably did not imagine sacking Constantinople. He wasn't thinking about an all-out assault on the city. He was assuming that like a Byzantine usurper, he could turn up, apply pressure, and wait for the Romans to overthrow their emperor for him. The Doge and Boniface knew all about Byzantine politics. Their huge navy would surely intimidate the Byzantines into restoring Alexius, and the whole thing would be over quickly. The Tsarans had capitulated immediately, so why couldn't this be repeated? Despite the mouth-watering offer on the table, the Latins had the decency to debate if this really was the right thing to do. Alexius was not a born-in-the-purple prince, and attacking fellow Christians had been explicitly forbidden by the Pope. In the end, the desire to keep the show on the road proved stronger than these objections. 
the decision was made to support Alexius and to divert the mission. Philip's envoys were called back. The leaders all swore an oath to restore Prince Alexius and they signed sealed charters confirming their intentions. Do you think we should have consulted the men before we swore on that? What? Oh, yeah, probably. Soon afterwards, the new plan was put to the mass of pilgrims outside, who were predictably apoplectic. Some were appalled at the idea that they would attack another Christian city. Others were just desperately sad at how long this was all taking. They had imagined they'd be in Jerusalem by now. Besieging Constantinople could take a year. This is not what they'd signed up for. Many joined Simon of Montfort on the road north. Others tried to sail away, with some drowning in the process. Others begged to be released from their obligations to the Venetians and allowed to sail directly for Acre. Our eyewitness, Vilhaduan, confesses that only twelve people from the French camp came forward to swear oaths to the leadership. The rest refused. Over the next few months, many dissenters abandoned the mission, which at least had the effect of strengthening those who were determined to stick with the Venetian fleet. Some had little choice but to stay where they were. They had run out of money and were struggling to feed themselves. The lure of Byzantine gold became greater with each passing day. In April, everyone agreed to leave Zara and sail on to their next stop, the island of Corfu. Getting away from the scene of the crime might ease their spirits, uh, though some agreed to travel in anticipation that they would then leave this corrupted mission and cross over to Italy. Just before the Venetians left Zara, they were joined by Alexius Angelos himself. He was warmly greeted by the Italians, who gave him a ship and men to serve him. As the armada made its way south, they stopped off briefly at Dyrrhachium, one of the few Byzantine outposts still firmly in imperial hands. The Venetians were encouraged by the fact that the people there were favourable towards Alexius Angelos, hailing him as emperor. Which certainly was good news. Hopefully all the Romans would recognise this young man as their rightful ruler and respond accordingly. I'm sure this response had nothing to do with the 200-strong fleet of ships passing by at the time. When the crusade hit the beach at Corfu, Alexius was introduced to the rest of the pilgrims, who gave him a far cooler reception. The debate reopened about the purpose of the crusade, and the mood soured. The vast majority of Latins wanted to sail straight to Acre. They seemed to have been told by this point that their real target was Egypt. And some feared that the indulgences offered by the Pope would never be theirs if they died on the Nile, rather than in the footsteps of Christ. When a group of senior nobles made contact with ships in Brindisi, who would take them away from this mess, the leadership council got together for crisis talks. If these men sailed away, the expedition would be ruined. The first-hand accounts of the crusade try to put a chivalric spin on the events of the Fourth Crusade, but they can't help but reveal the desperation of Boniface, Baldwin and the rest. They clearly felt that they would be utterly humiliated if they took the cross, promised a grand campaign, and then presided over a disaster. 
Not to mention that they had just sworn oaths and signed documents promising to go with the Venetians to Constantinople. Villehardouin quotes one of the leaders as saying, Why don't we go and beg them, for God's sake, to show some consideration for themselves and for us, and not disgrace themselves, nor deprive us of the chance of delivering the land overseas? These words frame what is about to happen in terms of the men letting their leaders down by breaking their oaths of allegiance. But given the sheer amount of deception involved in this campaign, it's a very selective argument. Boniface, Baldwin and Louis rushed to the camp to meet with their men. Once they were all together, the leaders did the only thing they could. They threw themselves to the ground, crying, and begged their men not to abandon them. This type of highly emotive performance was not unprecedented in medieval Europe, though it was usually reserved for religious occasions. Given this was a crusade, the leaders felt justified in lowering themselves in this way. And their wailing had the desired effect. Many in the assembled crowd wept too. They were all in this together, many of them bound to their lords by the kind of vows that today we reserve only for marriage. It was an emotional scene. As historian Jonathan Phillips says, it was a volatile mixture of genuine feeling, utter desperation, and emotional blackmail. And it did the trick. The men agreed not to abandon the mission. Eventually, the mass of Latin pilgrims promised to continue to serve until the end of September, but on condition that at that point they would be allowed to leave for the Holy Land if they liked. This was swiftly agreed, and relief swept through the camp and across the Venetian fleet. Alexius Angelos must have been the most relieved. This was his one chance to gain the kind of support that could restore him to the throne. The fleet set sail again on the 24th of May, 1203. No Byzantine ships opposed them as they sailed around Greece and north through the Aegean. They eventually landed at Abydos, one of the customs ports for ships entering the Sea of Marmara, but again no one tried to stop them. The locals ran in terror when the soldiers disembarked to gather supplies. On the 23rd of June, the fleet arrived at the Abbey of St. Stephen, which lay about five miles southwest of Constantinople itself. The skyline of the Queen of Cities astonished those who'd never seen it. By one modern estimate, the ten largest cities in Western Europe would have fit comfortably within its walls. Villehardouin says the following, I can assure you that all those who had never seen Constantinople before gazed very intently upon the city having never imagined there could be so fine a place in all the world. They noted the high walls and lofty towers encircling it, and its rich palaces and tall churches, of which there were so many that no one would have believed it to be true if he had not seen it with his own eyes, and viewed the length and breadth of that city which reigned supreme over all others. There was indeed no man so brave and daring that his flesh did not shudder at the sight. Capturing such a city would surely be impossible, right? Next time 
this darkest of comedies turns inevitably to tragedy. More lies, more greed, and more foolishness descend on an empire at its lowest ebb.